And so when you treat your workers like they are inmates at the asylum, then I don't know how that's a company of the future. I don't know how you're ever going to get the best out of your people because you've made it so difficult for them to feel that they're autonomous and that they have some kind of stake in the company because you have rules and regulations that make them feel like children. There's a revolution taking place right now. Talent and intelligence are equally distributed throughout the world, but opportunity is not. Technology is creating a market for things that never had a marketplace before. It's going on all around us. The talent economy, the idea that at the center of work is the talent, is the individual. Companies today are facing a global war for talent. At the same time, talent with the skills that companies are fighting over want more flexibility around the way they work and the way they live. Talent now has a choice, and this is pushing companies to change. We will bring together thought leaders, staffing experts, and independent workers to talk about the changing nature of work and how companies can navigate these changes to attract the talent that will alter the course of their business to ensure success as the pace of technological disruption increases. Welcome to The Talent Economy. I'm your host, Paul Estes. My guest today is Gina Hadley, head and co-founder of The Second Shift. Gina's mission is to make cultural changes within working cultures to support and retain women, including mothers, by demonstrating how even small changes ripple into huge impacts, creating a more sustainable workplace, increasing employee happiness, and enabling efficiency. Hey, I'm Gina Hadley, and I'm co-founder of The Second Shift. We are a marketplace that connects professional, vetted membership of women with companies that understand the value in their experience. We are on a mission to close the gender pay gap. Thank you so much for joining me today. I know that you and I have known each other for a while. I love the work that you're doing over at The Second Shift. But first, let's talk a little bit about your journey, because you weren't always co-founder of a marketplace working to close the gender gap. You had full-time jobs. In fact, you worked at Ogilvy and you've moved around a lot and you're a mom. I like to say that I was part of the gig economy before there was a word for it. I started my career at Ogilvy mainly because I got an MFA and I thought I was going to be a teacher. And then I did a year of teaching and it scared the bejesus out of me. Let's be specific. You got an MFA in Shakespearean studies, right? I did indeed. Yes. And I, it was really good for toasts at weddings. Isn't that what every parent, the degree that every parent asked their kid not to get? Perhaps, but I really thought I was on a path. I thought I wanted to teach. I got a great teaching job while I was in graduate school and the students couldn't have been more lovely and more attentive and more interested in what I wanted to do. But you have to know your skill set. And I had terrible stage fright even before I would walk into a classroom. And I'm a fake it till you make it kind of person, but you just can't really fake it when you have a room of 13 to 18 year old young women. I taught in an all girls school who are at the highest echelon at a prep school in New York City. Like you can't mess around. And for as much as I loved those girls and I loved Shakespeare, I just realized I wasn't bringing to them what they needed in order to really experience what I want. I, I just was, I, I'm even messing up my words by saying it. I was overwhelmed <laughs> and it wasn't, it was not my jam. And so what do you do when you have a master's in Shakespeare? Obviously you go work in advertising because <laughs> that's where so many of the creative misfits end up. And I was really lucky. I got a great entry-level job working for somebody who gave me an enormous amount of responsibility. 
And it was this very specific moment in time where Ogilvy had been awarded the biggest account in the history of advertising. IBM took their work away from all of like 40 or 50 other agencies and combined it all at Ogilvy, running it out of New York. And my boss was the creative director on the entire account. I do believe that it also part of my success was due to the fact that the CEO of the company at that point was a woman called Charlotte Beers. And the next CEO was Shelly Lazarus. So there was a foundation and a tradition of women being in charge at Ogilvy. And so it felt like a place where you didn't have to justify being a woman who raised your hand in a room. I watch my my wife work in corporate America to this day still struggles with you know, getting folks to to listen and pay attention. You moved around a lot. So after Ogilvy, you became a freelancer. I did. I At Ogilvy, I met my now husband and he got recruited to go to this crappy little town in the Pacific Northwest called Seattle. And watch it. <laughs> it was the 90s. So it wasn't the Seattle that we know and love today. It was a place where there was no real advertising. The big companies in town weren't even assigning work to local agencies. So when I got there, I was the worldwide creative coordinator on IBM by the time I left Ogilvy. And there was just not, there was no work for me in Seattle to do that, that kind of work. So I started freelancing and I took lots of different jobs and I worked for not-for-profits and I eventually landed at a startup that serviced the advertising industry. And I feel like that was my business school because I watched a founder blow through $10 million in funding and we never even launched a product. I look back at it now and I think, what do you mean we didn't do any user testing? <laughs> like, how is this possible that we just kept building product and never talking to anybody who would actually use it? But it was great edification for me because I, when I had the opportunity to build my own business, I knew exactly what I wasn't going to do. And then along the way, I had two kids and Eric and I moved back and forth across the country five times. So it was really hard for me to maintain what would be called the traditional career path. I want to get into the second shift, but what, what was the aha moment where you're like, because second shift isn't when I've talked to you, when your eyes light up, it's not really a company, it's a mission. So what was that moment that you said, hey, you know, the rest of my professional career isn't going to be spent in advertising or Shakespearean studies, but it's going to be spent on this mission. Like, What was that moment where you made that decision or, or saw that light? I believe that for me, at least, the key to all of this was that I had to solve a problem that I was intimately familiar with. So moving quite a bit and having kids at the same time precludes the traditional career path, right? I wasn't moving with a company. Every time I found myself someplace new, I had to start again. And so the best way to, for me to be able to do that was to create my own opportunities. And that was what you would call like consultative work. I, I had grown up at Ogilvy. I got a great education around brand marketing and brand mission and how you communicate what you're trying to do as a brand. And so I was able to use those skills with small companies in Seattle that were trying to come to New York and then companies in New York that were coming to Seattle. So I created this little niche for myself. And then when I got back to New York for the last time and we decided we were going to stay, I started to look around and see what I wanted to do. And I was in a really precarious place because 
Hustling for these kinds of opportunities is unfortunately like 75% of the work that you do. And so that use of time that you spend meeting with people and having coffees and and trying to hustle up the, the projects seems is exhausting because you're not actually doing the work. And then when I started to look at full-time positions, I realized that I would have to give up absolutely everything. And it was a very pivotal point in our lives. My kids were small. My younger son was in first grade. My older son was in fifth grade. We were back in New York City, and I didn't feel like I could give 60 or 80 hours a week to a job without sacrificing everything. And then I met my co-founder, I had met Jenny, my co-founder, a couple of years before I had helped bring the company that she and her husband started, Flywheel, to Seattle. Um, that was one of a project that I had worked on, and they were my client. And we realized that she was in this position as well. She was a freelance journalist who kind of looked around the newsroom and decided there was nobody that she wanted to be. That everybody had either forgotten to have a baby or never saw one. And when we now look back at it retrospect, sexism and Me Too was very real in the newsroom at a lot of places. Jenny was lucky that she had avoided it, but you just, there was an underlying sense of sexism. And so for us, it was the idea that if we're in this position and we're highly educated and extremely professional experienced, there have to be legions of other women who are finding themselves at this point in their careers trying to figure out how to keep working. And as we started to experiment and talk to people it became apparent that this is a huge issue. That's for us the mission of the second shift is to, we solved the problem for ourselves, but in the meantime, we created a company to make seismic and systemic change in the American workplace for professional women. And how did you land on the name Second Shift? I, it has meaning. So the second shift dates back to World War II, I believe, when that was the like the riveter movement, the women that came in after the men. But it was a sociologist out of Berkeley that coined the phrase. And it was the unpaid labor that women have to do when they come home from work in order to run a family and a household. In you know historical gender norms, the women, the wives would be the ones that did the laundry and worried about childcare and figured out what we were going to eat and did the, the house cleaning. And it was a very negative connotation. So Jenny and I actually reached out to the to the woman for the sociologist from Berkeley, and we told her what we were doing and we wanted to put a positive spin on it. And she was actually very, um, very appreciative and very supportive. And so for us, it's the idea that this second shift, this moment in time when you're trying to figure out what the next move is should be something that's positive and invigorating instead of debilitating. One of my passions that's very widely known is is really reaching out and finding experts who have time and, and availability to do project-based work. And even in my own freelancing network today, I'm at 65, 75% females and I don't have a formal diversity policy. I actually go out and there's amazing people in the market that that have time to do project-based work. And a lot of them were stay-at-home moms who had amazing careers and, and chose to, to take care of their families and you know still want, want to do work. When you look at the demographics of the people in your marketplace, what does that look like? Are they all stay-at-home moms? Are they people that are, are trying to stay connected? Are they transitioning? We have a very specific demographic. And when we started the company, I I can say that we were the first wave of this whole idea of this 
women's marketplace, freelance economy. You know, we started talking to people about this in 2015 when we were just Excel spreadsheets and doing everything offline. And we had to explain, I mean, I'm, sometimes I'm loath to use the terminology gig economy. Not sometimes loath, like it is a passionate point. Before we get into the, the marketplace, explain to me your hatred for the word gig economy. It is so much more nuanced than that. And at this point, we so much of what we read about in the press, when you talk about the quote unquote gig economy, it is about the hardship of an Uber driver or someone who works for TaskRabbit or Seamless. And there is a real argument to be made that that is a class that needs to be protected. But then there's also an enormous constituency of professional people who want to work this way. It is a far more consultative arrangement that they have with their clients. And so it's a very bifurcated demographic. And to try to paint it with one brush, and which is, I'm sorry to see California hitting this with a blunt hammer, but I think that there are conversations that need to be had around who these different segments of freelance workers are and how do you segment the way that we approach their engagements with their employers. And so gig economy to me just lumps everybody together. Like, look, gig economy could be, you know, like McKinsey style management consultants who are making, you know, millions of dollars a year right now, all the way down to the guy that brings you your delivery. And that to speak to all of those people the same way just seems foolish to me. Which is one of the reasons when we were naming this podcast, we focused it on sort of the talent economy or the idea that there is an, a tremendous amount of untapped talent in this country. Like you can forget about around the world. In this country, there is a ton of idle talent that doesn't have access to opportunity. So one more thing on this. I mean, in my second iteration of, or third or fifth or fourth iteration of my career, I mean, I really do think that there needs to be some kind of governmental oversight shift. And we can't just have it be 1099s and W-2s there needs to be another classification of worker if we're actually going to embrace, as you said, this idle talent that could push our economy, like put it into overdrive. Agree. So let's go back to the marketplace of the second shift and and the type of women that are in that marketplace. Going back to what we were talking about before, about being very early to this conversation and actually having to explain to employers what the freelance economy was, that there was a demographic of unbelievably talented professional women that were desperately trying to figure out how to keep working when the full-time workplace, the traditional workplace was not working for them. We made a decision very early on that we would focus really specifically on women who have already created their careers. So the membership of the second shift is a highly vetted, I hate this word, but it is curated demographic of women who have already spent a career perfecting their skills. So we know that, like, let's say we have a partner that needs somebody to come in and do a brand strategy. Our member will seamlessly be able to pick up that project. There isn't a huge learning curve. This isn't a re-entry. These aren't people, these aren't women who took 10 years off and need their skills refreshed and don't know what Slack is and don't know how to do a Zoom call and don't know how to use any of the products that are all of us are used to using in our day-to-day work life. These are professionals who can come in and say, I got it. 
I can do this. I did this. I did this for 10 years. I can totally help you figure out what your strategy on go-to-market could be because I worked at Johnson & Johnson for 10 years. Or let me help you with that deck because I was at Goldman Sachs for 15 years. So we pride ourselves in the professionalism and frankly, the self-starterness of these women. These are not women that need to have their hands held. So as an employer, you get really the opportunity to punch above your weight. You get to engage a super professional person and not have to hire them for full time. One of the things we're starting to see a lot is is fractional executives. Would you say that some of the, the women that are in the marketplace represent that fractional executive where you have a senior leader that says, hey, I'm not going to work full time. I don't want to be an employee for a lot of personal or professional reasons, but I'm happy to work in a fractional percent of, I've interviewed a fractional CMO that was a CMO at a mid-sized company who says, look, you don't need a CMO. I can come in and give you that level of service, that level of professionalism for a fraction of the cost and, and everybody's happy with that relationship. Well, and I think what we're seeing, I mean, I don't think, I know what we're seeing also is this extraordinary time in which we are living and where all of these businesses and these startups and, you know, companies that get series A and B funding, there is the idea that you need to have like a full roster of a C-suite before you can create market fit or create a product. And what we're talking to these fast-growing, well-funded companies about is the idea of fractional C-suite executives. You don't probably need a CFO. 60 hours a week right this very minute. Or maybe you do, but you don't need the CMO as well. So we also work with the holding companies that fund these startups. So whether it's private equity or venture capital, and they're excited at the prospect of giving their portfolio companies another alternative than rather than just saying yes or no, you can hire or not hire. For example, one of our early engagements was with a big tech media company, and they were spinning out one of their products as a platform. And they knew that they needed an incredibly heavy hitter the first nine months of the product and then to get to launch. But then moving forward, it would kind of be a ship that sailed itself. So they hired through us a CMO who had been in senior leadership roles at some really big tech companies, as well as a small startup. She came in, she ran the team for nine months, she got them to product launch, she best practices everything that they needed. And then when they launched, she was so happy to be able to hand the project over to her team and then move on to her next assignment. I think she actually took like six months off because it was very intense. But I think there is also the idea that we are getting comfortable with that your trajectory doesn't have to be for the rest of your life. I mean, I think it's what you're talking about. But it's exciting because it's like, I can dig in and I can do this for the next six weeks, six months, nine months. I just can't have this be the rest of my life. Like the whole idea of sprinting for your entire career is exhausting. But then the (laughs) other side of it is like we see at some companies that we all know that like your job is not that exciting. Your projects are not that fulfilling. And so you're just kind of going in and swiping your card because that's your job, but you're not actually really contributing anything. I was in an interview the other day and and was talking to a a gentleman at at a very large company where procurement and HR have sort of combined and now they've worked with finance to just hand groups their budget. 
And how you spend your budget is completely up to you. So that might be a full-time employee, that might be on demand, it might be remote. And, and so they're, they're giving the organizations a lot of flexibility to bring in people when they need them and not be so fixed. Because once you hire someone, even on the business side, forget the talent side of being locked in you know, for a long period of time and being handed you know, different projects that may or may not be interesting and may or may not continue to, to reskill you. But organizations get locked in as well. And so I think we're, we're seeing a change. There is a bunch of statistics that are out there that organizations just, I don't think, understand. If you look at the average tenure of an employee now at a company, it's three years. So the norm is I'm only going to be with you three years, but, but organizations now are still acting like, hey, you're going to be here 30 years. It's all going to be good. And like, that's just not the norm. I was actually talking about side hustles and moonlighting uh, on a panel this morning. And look, 65% of everyone has a side hustle, yet compliance organizations don't have a way to digest that and, and celebrate it. And so I, I think you're, you're pushing on a lot of ideas of, hey, and that's why I don't use the word future of work anymore. Well, it's not. We're here. We're here. This is not the future. And I honestly believe that organizations that, that talk about the future of work are trying desperately to hedge their bets that maybe something will change on the way there, (laughs) not realizing that they're already in the lean and agile company. That's your competitor. That's already figured out a way to work this way. They're living this reality right now. Whereas you're like, well, maybe someday we will work this way. And I think a lot of this has to do with, as you were saying, like, Look, I understand there has to be compliance. I understand that a lot of companies use all of these systems and processes that companies put into place for the worst case scenario. I wish that somebody would do, maybe I'll do this. I think that we need, <laughs> we need some kind of study to show how much we spend on compliance and the review of the lawyers and the master service agreements and the vendor agreements as opposed to like the outlier where something actually goes wrong. Yeah. And I think that so many big companies, unfortunately, you know, you and I have talked about like the post-traumatic stress disorder of companies that are, God forbid, something happened because it happened once. I also don't know, like you're giving away so much innovation the chance to innovate because you're stuck in this mindset. But it also has to do with where does procurement and HR feel that their responsibilities lie? Is it in service of pushing forward new agendas and figuring out how to embrace these exciting and new, quote unquote, new ways of working? Or is it in service of the company to make sure that nothing goes wrong? Innovation at companies that aren't embracing this new way is actually not innovation. You know, it's funny they, you know, they'll get up and they'll talk about innovation to what feels like incrementalism. I liked your point about, you know, companies that are talking about the future of work. There's there's people that are talking and there are people that are doing. I have a lived experience of of trying to move an organization into a different way of thinking and it's hard. It was very challenging to convince the procurement people and bring them along and and help them understand that they're actually in a, in a place to help drive innovation where the HR team, hey, you're in a place where you can actually help the business drive innovation. You're not on your back heels. You don't have to focus all of your time on compliance. You can help evolve those policies and do something actually, you know, pretty modern. And, and so it, it took a while, but, but over time, they, they started to understand that. There's also the idea that for so long, we have treated 
HR and talent officers like the gatekeepers. They only came in when thing when they the full time hire and then things went terribly wrong. And so you see at organizations where they're actually talking about talent and they're talking about usage and they're talking about employee retention and happiness. And it's not ping pong tables and it's not snacks. We're seeing where that has gotten us. And also <laughs> right. like the demographic of women that I'm talking about, I don't care about your kombucha on tap. Just, you know, there are moments in your life when you're young and all of those things seem very exciting because you're young and your work is what you're living, but it doesn't address, you know, a, a mature workforce. And one of the things that I'm also super interested in is how much talent we're bleeding as people get older and they still have so much to give, but maybe they don't want to do the 60 hours in the office because they have other priorities, but they're stepping away. I would argue that there are a lot of people who are entering the workforce that are millennials that aren't into ping pong tables and kombucha. Totally. I think there's, yes. there's a lot of organizations. That was a, gener- that was a generalization. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just pushing back on it because it's, it's also, it's not only millennials that want purpose at work, but I think there's a bunch of people that look at the internet and say, oh, modern workplace, that equals kombucha and, and open space and, and all. So I, that's one of the things I, I think about a lot. It's flexibility, no matter how old you are. Flexibility and empowerment and trust in a safe work environment is all people are asking for. If, if you read, and I've read more research reports than I care to admit, and I've talked to some of the biggest leaders in this space, and if you boil everything down, it comes down to give me good work, create a safe environment, and give me flexibility and empower me to do that work. Yeah, but that word trust, Paul, I think is really the key to all of this. I mean, we still see organizations like we one of our partners who shall remain nameless like when you key in with that badge they know where you are in the building at all time the namesake of the company knows who came in at eight and who came in at nine and he looks at the reports every week and this is a massive international company and so when you treat your workers like that like they are inmates at the asylum then i don't know how that's a company of the future i don't know how you're ever going to get the best out of your people because you've made it so difficult for them to feel that they're autonomous and that they have some kind of stake in the company because you have rules and regulations that make them feel like children. Yeah, I would bet that that same person is the one who gets on stage and talks about innovation and and the future of work as well. I wonder if they realize the disconnect because what I found in, in a lot of cases with senior leaders, middle management, is that they have a lived experience they earned, you know, their badge that said manager, and now they got to manager, and, and this is what manager always has looked like. And along the way, something happened. The modern manager drastically changed. You know, it became your player coach, not, to your point, a warden of the asylum. One of the major issues with the way that we set up organizations and these larger organizations in particular is that you do a good job, and as a reward, I will promote you. And then I will have people report into you. And having grown up at Ogilvy in a creative organization, there are people who are amazing at what they do and nobody should ever report into them. But if the way that we measure success is headcount and how many people are in your group and how much budget you have, we will be locked in this unhealthy metrics that 
does not realize that there are some people that are extraordinary managers and there are some people that are extraordinary individual contributors. And those are sometimes are mutually exclusive. I do not think we train good managers most of the time. I think that so many of the issues that we have is because you, Paul, were so good at your job. We're going to give you 15 people and more budget. Now figure out how to be a good manager and do your job. Well, forget training. I don't think we identify good managers. I mean, I've I've worked my career, you know, 20 years in big tech and I've had three or four amazing mentors and managers. I mean, when you get, it's like, it's like having a good teacher in in college or high school, which I still remember their names and, and how they made me feel and how they educated me and inspired me. And those people were amazing, but that was the exception, not the rule. The rule that I, I experienced over 20 years was a bunch of people who got headcount and sat there and protected their fiefdom and protected their job because they were getting paid a lot of money. And in a lot of ways, created toxic environments because they weren't their demand. If there is a HR person, procurement person, or a person out there who is running a business and, and you know really trying to understand and, and work in a new way, what's the one piece of advice that you would give them that's actionable? They're in their car, they're about to drive into their office, <laughs> and they're like, I'm tired, man. I, I want to do something different. Give them a piece of actionable advice. I think that the first thing that you can do when you get into your office and you take off your coat and you grab your first cup of coffee of the day. And my kombucha. And your kombucha, depending on where you work. (laughs) I think that to get out of your HR realm, to visit the teams that you manage, to find out what's going on, what their workloads are, what they're having problems with. And it's not going to be if we are going to embrace this more, this future of work. It's not going to all be in full-time headcount. Understand the nuances that sometimes teams just need that one person once a month to help them get that report done or that deck done. You can start to understand the workflow to understand the deliverables that your teams have in a more organic way. Your clients are the teams that you're servicing. It's not necessarily the HR organization as a whole. You become a team member. So you can help those stakeholders solve problems in more creative ways. And one of the things that I feel like we hear a lot is, oh, well, this is, if you bring in freelancers, then, you know, what about my job? This is a race to the bottom. I think HR professionals have to be able to address that head on. If somebody's really worried that a freelancer is going to take their job, then perhaps they should be doing a better job. In a lot of ways, if in my experience, if you go back and you wonder why do people feel that way, they don't work in a safe environment. It's not whether I can go do better work. I work in an environment where I show up every day and I'm waiting for the hammer to drop. Maybe I have a bad manager who's running a terrible toxic team and, and I'm afraid I'm like, I'm going to do something wrong and I I won't get rewards or maybe I'll lose my job. And so I think a lot of the fear that I've experienced when people say, hey, if I bring in a freelancer, what about my job? It's either positioned incorrectly and people don't understand where project-based work could be used and where it shouldn't be used and where a role for a full-time employee can be amplified or they haven't created a safe environment. And I I would argue that there's a large swath of large corporations that have not created a safe environment. And that's why you see the the rise of wellness. <laughs> One of the next roles, big roles in HR 
if not in the C-suite, is going to be around wellness of, of the work. I mean, this also brings me back to the, so now it's not kombucha and ping pong tables. Now it's meditation rooms and yoga at work. These are accoutrements that we are placing upon a much bigger systemic issue where as exactly as you say, the workforce does not feel empowered to do their best work because they're not being asked to bring their best self to work every day. And that's not being supported in a lot of ways. No, and I, and I have an enormous amount of empathy for HR and talent because they have been asked for so long to just whatever you do, don't get sued. And now we are asking them to break the entire system that they have been the gatekeepers of. So I get it. This is hard stuff. But I think when we all come to it with a mindset that for us, it's about supporting this very specific group of women who are just trying to keep engaged. And if we ever want to see any, I mean, this is where it comes back to the mission of our company. If we ever want to see any systemic change in levels of diversity in the C-suite, of people who are making these decisions about how organizations are run. If we ever want to see this gender pay gap close, we have to figure out a different way to work with women. And that actually, in my opinion, extends to lots of different categories of individuals who have found themselves on the outs at a lot of workplace environments. It's the LGBTQ community. It's the non-white community. Like there's just so many individuals who have so much to give who are not engaging because this workplace was not built for that. I'm going to move on to one of my favorite parts of the show. It's called Rapid Fire. Do we have a lightning round? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions and you have not seen these questions. And as always, I'm going to give you the opportunity to ask me two questions at the end. You ready? Yep. What's one thing about you that's not on your LinkedIn profile? I am a pro napper. (laughs) Nice. I love a nap. I should have been born in a place where there was a siesta. It would have been so good for me. What's the difference between an amateur napper and a professional napper? I don't make excuses. I think napping is unnecessary. I don't get to do it enough. But when I do, it it just really, it, it gives me the juice that I need to go on with the rest of my week. That's awesome. Here's the second question. If you could trade lives with anyone for one day, who would it be and why? Oh my God, I would so love to be a professional athlete like Abby Wambach or Serena Williams. I would love to be Chris Everett, to be able to make the perfect shot, to have that kind of mastery and to have been selfish enough to realize that everything that you do for yourself is honoring what you are expected to do on the field or on the court. I can't imagine what it must be like to hit a three-point shot. Wow. The third question. If you were stranded on a tropical island, what two things would you want with you? My husband and music. I think music, I think even music more than books. Yeah, I I agree. I think that's a good answer. Question four, what book or movie has inspired you the most over the past year? I have to say I reread The Goldfinch again this year. And I know that seems like an answer that a lot of people might give, but it just, the storytelling, the epic expanse of the book, the characters in it. It really, the thing that, that I loved about it is it took me out of my day-to-day. It had nothing to do with my reality. And that's what I love about fiction. Awesome. Last question. What's better, being radically curious or having attention to detail? I have to say radically curious because I don't have attention to detail. I'm going to give you the opportunity to ask me two questions if you'd like. 
I would love to know in all of your experiences working with this really vast freelance community, setting up your own business and writing your book and all of these things, who is someone that you've been working with that you think, wow, if I hadn't engaged with them, I would never know that this person exists and I'm better for meeting them. I'm so fortunate that every one of my days is filled with meeting some amazing people who believe that they're working on something that's really important. I'd have to answer the question in the story I tell that started all of this. You know, the the one freelancer on Fancy Hands that, you know, was a virtual assistant that helped me find something to do with my family when I was super stressed and working and and we went to a festival on a, on a Sunday. I mean, that's kind of what started the whole thing. So I I would answer the question, the person of the year is the freelancer. And every other freelancer I've met since then has contributed to part of this journey. So it's it's the freelancers. Some Some I know their names and some I don't. And then my, my second question is, what are you looking forward to in 2020? Like one thing that you know, like I'm definitely going to do that. My book launches. I spent two years on this book and, and sort of living it. So it's not, a, it's not an academic view of the future of work and automation and blockchain. It's my lived experience. And, and my hope is that people look at the journey that I had as a third generation company man, 20 years in tech and now freelancer and can see themselves in it and can start to understand a journey and, and can take away some very tactical things that help them envision a better life. And so if I can help do that in 2020 with the book, the podcast, the editor-in-chief work that I'm doing with staffing.com with TopTal and, and others, that's my hope is, is just to help people realize that a, a better life is possible. Change is hard, but it's possible. Well, I am a huge fan of that mission. And I think the better off we all will be for all of the work that you've done. And I thank you for that. I thank you also for having been a company man and understood the value and what Jenny and I are building. And that's the kind of feedback that makes everything that we do worthwhile. Because this ain't easy. I got to tell you, (laughs) starting a company, there is a lot of mythology and a lot of romance about being a founder. And it's some days it's really, really hard. But I thank you for always, you know, supporting us. Yeah, no, I, I love the work you guys are doing. If somebody wants to get in touch with you or learn more about the company, what is the best way to do that? Visit the website at secondshift.com. You can always hit me up. I'm Gina, G-I-N-A, at thesecondshift.com. We love to follow us on Instagram and on LinkedIn. We love to hear from freelancers and HR professionals and anybody who's interested in what we're up to and needs the very, very best to help them get something done. Thank you so much. Thanks, Paul. I'm your host, Paul Estes. Thank you for listening to the Talent Economy Podcast. Learn more about the future of work and the transformation of the staffing industry from those leading the conversation at staffing.com, where you can hear from experts, sign up for our weekly newsletter, and get access to the best industry research on the future of staffing. If you've enjoyed the conversation, we'd appreciate you rating us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or just tell a friend about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of The Talent Economy.